0: Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find Him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. We're going to finish our series, wrap up our series, God With Us, based on Isaiah 53. And we actually finished teaching through the entire chapter of Isaiah 53 last week. But what we're going to do today is we're going to go right from the prophetic utterances of Isaiah and go to the place where it was fulfilled in the book of Matthew. So we're actually going to look at Matthew 123 today as we continue and finish our series, our Advent series, God with us. You know, I believe the fact that the promise of the gospel is that God is with us is the greatest promise in the gospel. You know, when Adam and Eve fell and death came in the world, one of the ways to think about death is separation. Separation, spiritual death is separation from God. Physical death is our body separating from itself. The death of relationships is separation from a person. Uh, When we we physically die, we are separated from loved ones and separated from friends and, and family. And so death is separation. And yet the gospel says, and the promise of Isaiah is that God would be with us. Think about that. The separation is reversed. That The gospel says he's reversed death in that way. He's reversing spiritual death. Instead of God being separate from us, he would be with us perpetually. And we're going to look at Matthew 1.23 as sort of the springboard text to talk about this idea of God with us today. Because Matthew one twenty three, he refers to a prophetic utterance and promise from Isaiah 7.14. He repeats it when he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He explains what it means. He says, which means God with us. So I want to dig into that today. What does it mean that God is with us? And why did God do it? Why could God do it? We're a fallen world. We're a world in rebellion against him. This, the human race has committed treason against the kingship and lordship and authority of God. Why would he do it? We're gonna talk about that in just a few minutes. First, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the coming of Christ in the manger. We thank you, we celebrate him, and we also look forward to his second coming. We look forward to the return of Christ when he'll make all things new, and we thank you that today in the gospel, Lord, as we celebrate Jesus, we get this picture of him and this promise from him that he is with us to the end of the age. Help us to be encouraged by this and help it deepen our worship during this Christmas time. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. So what does it mean? Let's dig into this idea of what does it mean that God is with us? Well, it means that God is with us in multiple ways. It means he is with us nationally and with his people Israel nationally it means he's with us relationally provisionally he's with us as a defender and he's with us on our mission or missionally let's talk about this idea of God being with us nationally in Isaiah 9 7 the prophet writes of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so he foretells a king who would not be corrupt, a king who would lead with benevolence and kindness and bless his people and and establish his throne and bring justice to the people and, and establish his throne with righteousness and serve his people out of a rightness of heart and, and treating people in the way that a leader and a king ought to treat people with servant kindness and servant love. It's the king everybody wants. This is the leader everybody wants. This is the president everybody wants. And Isaiah says: really, the purest version of that is only found in Christ. He'll rule, he'll reign to establish and uphold his kingdom with justice and with righteousness. Now, many of these prophetic utterances and promises when originally given, were taken in the context of what we call natural Israel, the nation of Israel. So when Isaiah was foretelling of these promises and the coming of the Messiah and the deliverer and this king who would serve with justice and righteousness, the people hearing it would have taken it as a king who would come and rescue physical, natural Israel. Only after Jesus came would they have seen it in a broader sense, for the church, but that idea was not in, in anyone's minds at the time. And so for Isaiah to foretell that his name would be Emmanuel, God with us, it would have been a great comfort to the people of Israel. And it meant that God would come as the reigning king, the ultimate king, and he would, he would send the ultimate king to reign over Israel and deliver, deliver Israel from their enemies. Now, many in Israel, of course, we've, we've discussed this in the past, thought their greatest enemies were the Romans. That if they could just be free from the Romans, they would be truly free. And yet we know, uh, especially in the West, when we, where we live in a, in a free country, that freedom is not just political freedom or getting to do whatever you want. True freedom is freedom from our bondages. It's freedom from uh, from the bondages of the heart. It's freedom from sin. It's freedom from its effects in our lives. You can be living in an absolutely free country and be a person in total bondage, and we see it all the time. So we need a king who will not just deliver us from the Romans. We need a king who will deliver us from eternal enemies, and that was the intent of God that was sort of veiled in its secret and was revealed at a later time, that this king would come, first of all, would be God himself, and he would deliver Israel not from temporal natural enemies, but he would deliver Israel from eternal enemies, from death, from the powers of hell and from sin and its effects in our lives. And so this is the king who would come and reign over natural Israel. This is how he would reign and establish his eternal kingdom is through his death and resurrection. Now, Paul says something shocking in Romans 9 about Israel. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, Jesus didn't fail uh, to complete the mission to save Israel. For not all who are descended from Israel, he said, belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Shocking statement. This means that the promise of Isaiah ultimately speaks of an eternal nation, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal king that crosses the borders of the international uh, state of natural Israel. So Jesus reigning as, nat- nas- as a national king, though it includes natural Israel, is ultimately about spiritual Israel. What is spiritual Israel? That's the church. That's all those who would believe in him from every nation, Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians that God will create one new man, one new nation founded in Christ. And those who dwell in it are those who have received the gift of salvation that this king has offered and received it by faith. So he would not simply be the king of the Jews, but king over all people who would believe in his name. So God with us means he is with us nationally, with natural and spiritual Israel as we all come together in this one new nation, this one new, one new man in Christ and it says the zeal of the lord of hosts will accomplish this isaiah said sounds a lot like jesus in matthew 16 when he said i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it do you see that there's a there's a god part of our salvation is a God part of the deliverance that is initiated by God. And it, it wasn't man's idea. It wasn't even because man prayed, you know, Israel prayed or the nations prayed and asked for deliver. Certainly that, you know, God orchestrated that desire in the hearts of the nations. But the reason God saved the world, the reason God saved his people, the reason God saved the church and rescued them through the cross is because God wants to. God desires to, it's his zeal, it's his heart, it's his plan, it's his idea, it's his desire and he worked that out in the world in and through the hearts of his people who would cry out for it but the reason they're crying out for it is because it's in God's heart and he wants them to cry out for it. He put that desire in the hearts of Jews and Gentiles alike. Save us, deliver us, send us a deliverer. Of course, God heard that cry and he said to Moses, I've heard the cry of my people and I've come down to deliver them but it's the zeal of the Lord. It's the desire of God. He began it, like Paul said, and he'll complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So he's with us nationally. Number two, he's with us relationally. This is Isaiah chapter nine and verse six. He foretells, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I love it. Don't you love it? That even in the Old Testament, he is referred to as our Father. Now, that was an idea and a name of God that wasn't used very often. In the Old Testament, the name of God that would have been used didn't even have any vowels. It was Y-H-W-H. Sounds like a whisper, doesn't it? Yahweh. And to say his name flippantly would be to commit a crime of blasphemy that was punishable by death in the law of Moses. And that's how much they revered God's name. But here Isaiah says, that there's a day when he was going to be called Everlasting Father. And the disciples come to Jesus in the New Testament, and they say, teach us how to pray. And he says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. He introduced Jesus to sinners, to tax collectors, to, to fishermen, to commoners, to blue-collar people who were not raised in the, in the uh, holy elitism of the temple of that day and of the, the Jerusalem elite. They, they were... Uh, far removed from Jerusalem, in, in Nazareth. And, and he says to these people, call him Father, the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, that he shall be called Everlasting Father. And you know, one of the great plights of our generation, I don't think I have to sell anybody this idea, one of the great plights is fatherlessness. There's, a, there's like an orphan spirit that seems to grip so many lives and, and shape So many minds and so many hearts and so many many people's experience in life is shaped by this fatherlessness, this, this orphan mentality. And you know what God is saying? That for those who believe in Christ, he's saying there will be no more orphans. There will be no more fatherlessness. The orphan shall have a father. And this father is with us Perpetually, he'll never leave us. He'll never abandon us. He'll never forsake us. You know, the the, the nearness of a, of a father is a, is is a deeply comforting thing for a child. You know, there's this really touching scene in the movie *The Patriot*, where there's this uh, this this little girl, the daughter of the Mel Gibson character, and you know she's she's uh, mute when it comes to her father. Doesn't say anything to her father, and, and and he's going off to war, and and she clearly misses him, and but she never she never says anything to him, and. He, he always wants her to talk to him and she does not talk to him. Well, one, one moment he's in the movie, he's, he's going off to war again. He's going off to battle. And she calls out, Daddy, don't go. And she speaks for the first time. It's a very touching part of the movie. Daddy, please don't go. You know, the, just the, the withness of dad is so deeply comforting. It's so important for a child to know dad is with me. Dad is near. Dad, dad regards me. He knows me. He loves me. He's, he's with me. And part of the promise of Isaiah and the coming of Christ would be that he'd be called Everlasting Father, that he would be with us in that way. He will permanently be with us. And Galatians 4, 6, and 7 talks about the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, you know, before I read that, I want to read John 14, 17. Jesus said, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Really interesting uh, nuance to the withness of God in the new covenant, in the, in the gospel, in the New Testament age. He says there was a day when the Holy Spirit would be with God's people but there's going to come a day, and that's because of Christ, that he will literally be inside of us. This is called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful promise of the gospel. It's, it's one of the marks of his witness is that he's literally inside, that we are like a temple walking around. We're all like temples walking around in this world where, that, that are, that's indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, Galatians 4 tells us what the Holy Spirit does inside that temple, what he does in, in our hearts. You know how you go into a temple and worship? Well, the Holy Spirit goes into this temple, and it says in Galatians four, six, and seven, he cries out, Abba, Father. He cries out, Daddy, God, Abba was a very intimate term used for Father. Matter of fact, I saw it in person. Uh, I was in, uh, when I was in New York, we, we went out for some ice cream one day on the, on the canal that runs through Rochester and this little ice cream shop in Pittsburgh. And I'm sitting there with some friends, and all of a sudden I hear a little girl go, Abba! Abba, is an Arabic family. Abba! And his little girl comes running to her dad. I turn to the person next to me who's part of our church, and I'm like, there it is. There's the gospel right there. The spirit cries within us, Abba, Father. So, one of the marks of God within us is he creates an awareness of his fatherly love and presence in our lives. It's a beautiful. Uh, part of the gospel, that not only is his promise that he would be with us, but he himself would indwell us and remind us constantly of that promise by crying out in our hearts, Abba, Father. In other words, we'll be confident that we're children of God. We'll feel, not just know that we're loved. It's it's one thing to have like a mental awareness of a truth in the Bible or a promise of God. That's a good thing to have. We, We can claim that. But the indwelling Holy Spirit helps us to feel it, to know it. To know His witness, that He's with us relationally as a Father. But here's the thing: not only will be we be welcomed to God's family. That's one thing, but the, the the Scriptures seem to indicate somehow that we're all gonna feel like. His favorite son. I don't know how God does it, but every one of us feels like his favorite son. It reminds me of John, Christ's apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John and the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Now that seems arrogant. Like, why, why would he say that about himself and nobody else? It wasn't arrogant. It was just confident. He had that witness of the Holy Spirit in his heart. He knew who he was in Christ and in his eyes. He was. He said, I don't know how everybody else is feeling, but I know how I'm feeling. I'm the disciple Jesus loves. And I think that as we come into our relationship with with God the Father, somehow we all feel like that. You know, in the Jewish nation, it was a very big deal to be the firstborn in a family because the greatest blessing fell upon that firstborn son. And Hebrews 12, 23, it says something shocking. It says, in joyful assembly, To the congregation of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You know, that word firstborn isn't referring to Jesus. He is the firstborn uh, of the Father in a sense, the firstborn from the dead, he's referred to also in Scripture. But that word is plural, and it speaks of a congregation of firstborn sons and daughters. It's crazy. This tells us that God's household only has firstborn sons and daughters. That the firstborn love that every son felt in Israel and that the son of God felt from God the Father when the Father said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, received that firstborn blessing. That we all stand in the sun rays of that, in in the sunshine of that and live in the sunshine of that love. You're God's favorite son. You're God's favorite daughter. I'm God's favorite son. I'm God's favorite daughter. You're the disciple Jesus loves. I'm the disciple Jesus loves. It's a beautiful part of the gospel that he is with us relationally and he comes to us as a father and he, and he teaches our hearts what that means and helps our hearts to feel it deeply. Paul also said in Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself for me. God loves the world generally, but man, Paul felt it personally, and we ought to as well in Christ because of the Father's love. So he's with us nationally. He's with us relationally. He's with us what you might call provisionally. To say I am with you, one commentary writer points out, denotes the giving of divine aid. The giving of divine aid. Well, what kind of divine aid? Every kind. Matter of fact, uh, I think it's Ephesians, it says we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In other words, whatever we need, he is that to us and for us. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Another translation says an ever present help in trouble. In other words, wherever your trouble is, he becomes what you need to walk through that trouble. He becomes healing. He becomes comfort. He becomes wholeness. He becomes grace. He becomes mercy. He becomes perseverance. He's very present in your trouble. You know, when Moses met God at the burning bush, he said, whom shall I say sent me? And he said, God said this, tell them I am that I am. It's one of the more mysterious names of God that's used in the Old Testament. God uses it to describe himself as he's, proclaiming to us who he is so that we can know that and that can be revealed. He says, I am that I am. Jesus in the New Testament, when he was talking to the religious, his religious persecutors, said before Abraham was, I am. He used the same name that God used to describe himself to Moses. Jesus was making a claim to be that voice that spoke to Moses at the burning bush, that he is the I am. But I want you to think about that name, I am. Not that he was, just that he was, Now he was, not just that he will be and he shall be, he was and is and is to come, right? But this tells us something about God's, the, the, the tense that God lives in. God has one tense. It, and it's just present. He is simply present. So you might say that um, God am in the past, God is in the present, and God am in the future. God am in your past. God am in your present, and God am in your future. He sees and knows it all. He, he, He sees your past, he knows it, and he's already present in your future in some sense so that we fear nothing because he, how can he foretell the future? through Isaiah the prophet. He sees it. He knows it. He's already interacting with it. He has one tense. He just is. And so who is He to you and to me? He is. He is your Father. He is your comfort. He is your salvation, past, present, and future. He is your righteousness. He is your deliverer. He is your shalom. He is your healing. He's with us provisionally. He provides for us all that we need in our suffering, our pain. And in a moment, we're going to see he provides for us in our mission. So he's with us provisionally. He's also with us as a defender. He defends us in a couple ways. Number one, he defends us from internal and external enemies. I want you to think about the enemies that come into our lives internally, the the suffering we can go through mentally and and spiritually and emotionally inside. He defends us from those enemies. He defends us from external enemies of sin, sickness, even death, uh, financial trouble. He mitigates the blows that we take from the sufferings of this world whether it be internal enemies like anxiety, depression, fear, discouragement, or grief, or the external enemies of sickness and disease, financial strain, relational betrayal, and pain. He defends us. He's the one who says that's enough. You know, people pray for a hedge of protection. Oh Lord, I pray a hedge of protection around, you know, my son or my daughter. We need to understand that we don't actually need to pray for that. If we're in Christ and if someone you're praying for is in Christ, they, there is a hedge of protection around them and God is the gatekeeper of that hedge and God of, that, of, of what comes in and out of that hedge of protection and he controls the, the flow of what goes in, the intensity of our pain and trials and suffering, the duration of it, he controls it all. And he's the one who says, that's enough. And if anything is If any trouble comes into our lives, we can be sure that God is sovereign over it. And it's his providence. He's using his sovereignty in a way that is loving and merciful and caring and wise to bring about his sovereign purposes in our lives for his glory and our ultimate good. And so he defends us from internal and external enemies. He's the gatekeeper. And he defends us, number two, he defends us from sin. Sometimes we... Think of it in this way, where he, you know, we think of his defense as he fends off an attacker like fear, discouragement, depression, sickness, and poverty. And that's certainly one way, as I just discussed, that we can think about his defense. But one of the main ways he defends us is to keep us from sin. In fact, conversely, one of the signs of God's judgment is not that God punishes for sin, but that God allows an individual or a nation to be given over to sin. That's actually a sign of his judgment. So sometimes you hear people say God's going to judge America, and I guess my question is, what if He is, in some sense, already by allowing America to be given over to sin in a way where it's uninterrupted and He doesn't restrain it? That is a form of judgment. Now, I, I don't—I'm not suggesting that America is, uh, you know, being ultimately judged or ultimately damned. We need to pray for our country that God wouldn't allow our country to be just given over to sin in the way that it has because it's it's a sign of our condemnation and destruction if we're given over to it without restraint. But I do believe that God hears our prayers for our country and he shows mercy as we pray. Somehow he's connected what he does in a nation with God's people in that nation or that city praying for that city or that nation. So let's let's uh let's play our part in the great orchestra piece of, of what he is doing in our day, the, the great music that, that he has pre-written and forewritten, but he wants us to pick up our instruments of prayer and pick up our instruments of preaching and pick up our instruments of, of doing kindness and doing good and, and serving him in that way so that we could see people come to him in our country and in our cities. And that sort of leads me to the final point. Uh, of how he 's with us, he 's with us missionally. He sends us on a mission to proclaim him among the nations and promises to be with us as we go. Matthew 28, eighteen, where this promise of god 's presence, god 's withness, is repeated, but it 's repeated in the context of us being on his mission. Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I like to think of that phrase, I'm with you always, as I'm with you in all of your ways. Is not a single thing you'll experience, a single path you will walk down, a single chapter in your life, that Jesus is not with us as we go down that road. And we see his withness in the disciples. In Acts 4.13, it says, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They had been with him and now he is with them in a new way. He's 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 indwelling them by his Holy Spirit, and we see this same promise playing out in our own lives. What has God called you to do? And and maybe it's not this you know sort of uh, you know sentimental, grandiose uh, you know Christian work that, that you're going to be involved. In. Like oh God's I'm going to be this great missionary or I'm going to be this you know this great uh, worship. Leader or pastor or or elder or or Bible teacher, I'm going to do this great thing for God. You know, sometimes we only think of Christian work when we when we talk about God's call and God's plan for our lives. Sometimes the work is just doing the simple, even mundane will of God for your life every single day and shining His light in that context. So perhaps it's being a dad or being a mom or being a husband, uh, being a, a wife. Uh, being a son or a daughter in, in, the, in, the, in the home that you're in, being a student in school, being, a, being an athlete on a sports team. You know, what has God called you to do and be? That's where his power, that's where he's with you to give you strength and wisdom and power to do his will for your life, to, to persevere in that and to glorify him in it and to point the way that your life would be like a, a, a big neon sign pointing to Jesus or as the scripture says, a living epistle, that you're a, you're a book, Uh, written by the hand of God for men to see, men and women to see, the story of of Jesus in you. It's true that the only Bible some people may ever read is you and me. And so what is God's will for your life? Trust God that he is with you in that story and he will give you the strength to do it. You know, it, it when we think about this, this beautiful, great promise of God being with us and how, how wonderful that is, it really does change our experience, doesn't it? You know, we were at the, at the uh, ocean in uh, Outer Banks, North Carolina a few years back. We, we, our extended family rented this big house and we had some days there together. And I remember my daughter, Audrey, you know, she's, uh, she's 14 now and yeah, this is probably ten years ago. She's like four years old, and we were out at the ocean, and the waves are really big. And she she wanted to go in, but but kind of didn't because she was scared of the waves. And I said, "Sweetheart, what if Daddy went with you?" Yeah, that just changed everything. When when I said I'll be with you, but that just changed the whole experience. And took her in my arms and went out there, and we were just getting you know blasted by these waves and we fall in the water. I'd pick her up, and we're just having so much fun. And what would have been what would have been terrifying for her and probably dangerous, uh, maybe life-threatening without me, because I went with her, it made it exhilarating. It changed the whole experience. And think about the will of God for your life. What has God called you to do? What has God called you to be? Where has God called you to go? What has God called you to say? It might seem terrifying, but Jesus says, I am with you. I am with you. He's not just with us to watch. He's with us to empower and to provide and to defend and to strengthen so that we can do the will of God for our lives and glorify Jesus Christ through our lives, our, word and, our words and our deeds. And finally, briefly, I said, you know, what does it mean that God is with us? And then what I want to finish with is the, the second question, briefly, why? Why did God do it? Why did God promise this? Why is God with us when we're fallen and we've rebelled against him? We've rejected his authority. We've sought to rule our own lives. Romans 5, 8 tells us why. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, sinners, Christ died for us. You know, God didn't die for us because we were lovable and perfect. He died for us because he is love and he is perfect. And God did what he did because of who he is. He didn't wait for us to meet a condition or to impress him or to check the boxes or jump through the hoops. He did it because it's his nature to do it. And he did it through Jesus Christ. God demonstrates his love for us in this that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So the reason God is with us, the reason God can be with us is because Jesus was forsaken. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God ceased to be, God the Father ceased to be with Christ the son so that he could say to us, eventually, I'm with you. But death could not hold Jesus down. He was raised up and he was restored and exalted to the right hand of the Father so that now we are part of God's family through Christ eternally our resurrected King. You know, I met a man in Ohio and I asked him, this is years ago, I asked him the two question test. If you died right now and had to stand before God, would he accept you? And he said, uh, probably not. I don't think, no, he wouldn't accept me. I said, why? He said, I've sinned too much. And I said to him, don't you see? You're the perfect candidate for grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace isn't for those who can, would, couldn't, did. Grace is for those who can't, wouldn't, couldn't, and didn't. That's what makes it grace. I said, the fact that you recognize that you're fallen, the fact that you recognize you're unworthy. I said, my friend, you are not far from the kingdom of God. God's desire has always been to break into the lives of those who don't deserve it, who didn't work for it, and wouldn't even fully appreciate it after they have it, to show his love and his grace and his mercy. And you know what? That's you and that's me, that's his church. We are saved and we are redeemed, but we don't fully grasp his love. We don't, we certainly don't deserve it. We don't, we, we don't fully see the, the magnitude of it and the greatness of it. It's gonna take an eternity to see it. But until then, we lean into it. We receive it as a gift and we move toward it. And we worship and we seek to live lives of gratitude and honor. So why did God do it? Because his heart is full of grace. Receive that grace today. And receive the promise that comes along with that grace that I am with you, that God is with us and he is with you in every way he can be for our success. And sometimes success means walking through suffering, walking through pain, walking through seasons of doubt, walking through times of discouragement or the betrayal of others, but never God walking through times of disorientation and disenfranchisement, but he's with us until the end. And he promises to give our hearts the Holy Spirit who will ever cry out within us and bring us back to this cry. Even if we drift and we wander from it, he'll bring us back to the reality that God is our everlasting father and loves us and will never forsake us and will never leave us. This is, the, this is Christmas. This is what Christmas is about. God is with us. He came in the form of Christ. And through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he's with us in a way that's even greater than that. It's even greater than Christ in the manger. It's Christ in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Let him cry out today in you, Abba, Father. Enjoy. Embrace. Encourage your heart and others during this Christmas season of this great promise of God that is with us to the very end of the age. And aren't you glad? Merry Christmas. Jesus is enough. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.